Well, good morning. Good to see you all again and to be with you to bring God's word this morning. It's always a pleasure to be with Chevrolet. Uh, we've prayed for Chevrolet when, uh, before Chevrolet existed. Me and John were talking for a long time about what this would look like. And I think uh, to both of our surprises, the Lord has done even more exceedingly abundantly than we ever asked or thought. And so glad to be here. Love your pastor. Uh, John has been kind to me from the first day we met. We met at a one-day conference years ago. I, was, I went to the conference by myself, and John came over and just made himself known, uh, was just kind, pleasant, and we've kept in touch for a number of years. And then John can also preach, as you know. I joked earlier with someone that John is my church's favorite preacher other than me, and the other than me part is probably just my own self-imposed words there. And so, uh, love John, grateful to be with you and bring God's word this morning. Let's go before the Lord with, with a brief word of prayer. Lord, we pray that you would settle our hearts, that you'll open our hearts to receive the, the food of your word that you give us. Lord, have your work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. They called her Moses. Not because she looked like him, but because she acted like him. Having secured her own freedom, Harriet Tubman made more than a dozen trips back down south, escorting dozens, perhaps hundreds of slaves to freedom without losing a single passenger. Frederick Douglass, the, the famed abolitionist, commented about her, I know of no one who has willingly encountered more perils and hardships to serve our enslaved people. Yet it wasn't desire for recognition that motivated Harriet. The source of her strength lie in the faith in her God, the Lord whom she trusted to be a protector and a deliverer of the weak. Her faith, coupled with her love for people, led her on those dangerous journeys leading people to experience the freedom that she too had experienced and that she hoped they would as well. Many were afraid and many wanted to turn back, but Harriet would not let them. Follow me, she insisted, on to freedom. Harriet Tubman's life is a small example of what love looks like in action giving your own life to secure the freedom of others, thinking of the well-being of others over and above your own, leading the way for them to a better life and telling them to follow behind you. Her life was a model of her saviors who gave his life to securing the freedom of others, who cared for people enough to come for them and to call on them to follow him to follow his words, to follow his example, to follow his love for God and his compassion for those made in God's image. This morning, we want to consider what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be his disciples and to learn from him. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9? And this morning, we'll look at verses 9 through 13 together. Matthew chapter 9, we'll look at verses 9 through 13 together. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 9. We read, and as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In this passage, we get a firsthand account of of the author of this book, Matthew's conversion. His beginning to follow Jesus. The, the, The man, Matthew, who wrote this book is a disciple we just read about. And here's what I think Matthew means to highlight in recounting this story. The main point, the main idea of Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Jesus calls the most despised sinners to leave their sin and cleave to him and to invite others to do the same. Jesus invites, Jesus calls the most despised sinners to leave their sin and cleave to him and to call others to do the same. So so while this story involves Matthew, it's about Jesus, as the entire book of Matthew is, as the entire Bible is. We want to stare at Jesus this morning, and as we look at him in this passage, we want to note something of Jesus's four-part discipleship plan. And those four parts will serve as the four points of this sermon. Four parts of Jesus's discipleship plan. Number one, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. We see that at the beginning of verse nine. Number two, Jesus picks a simple curriculum. We see that at the the end of of verse 9. Point number three, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. We see that in verses 10 and 11. And point number four, Jesus promotes theological education. We see that in verses 11 through 12. Four parts, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. Jesus picks a simple curriculum Number three, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. And number four, Jesus promotes theological education. Point number one, Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. Well, look at verse nine again. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. As we come to this passage, we see Jesus on the move again. He passes on from the house where he previously healed a man to now find another person in need. It's interesting when when you think of all the good ministry that Jesus Christ left behind. I mean, if you just read through the Gospels, you see that everywhere Jesus went, he generally bore fruit. People were consistently helped by his ministry. I mean, if you just look at... Uh, let your eyes scan up the, the previous passage in the, in the passage before this one. He brought both physical and spiritual healing to a paralytic. In the passage before that, over in the region of the Gadarenes, he, he healed two demon-possessed men. In the passage before that, he healed all the sick and all the lame that people brought before him. In the passage before that, he, he healed a centurion's servant. You get the sense that if Jesus would have stayed in one place, he would have never have run out of good things to do to people. And yet he he spread out. His time on earth was limited and he had many people to see, many people to save, many people who needed him. And so he comes here in this passage and finds Matthew. But at first glance, he doesn't seem like someone in need as someone lacking. I mean, if you look at the previous passage at the paralytic in verses 1 through 8, obviously he has needs. I mean, the imagery used to describe him and the situation that he was in all but cry out, this man needs help. But notice here how strikingly different the picture of Matthew is. Wherein in the previous passage, in verse 2, the paralytic was lying on his bed. Here in verse 9, we find Matthew sitting up at the tax booth. Where the paralytic needed his friend's help to get him to Jesus, here Matthew seems self-sufficient. 
I mean, he got a job, a, a good paying government job with a pension and good benefits and paid vacation. Life is sweet. Matthew is not looking for Jesus. And yet Jesus is looking for him. We read that Jesus passed by and saw Matthew. Now, suppose that passing the crowded streets of Capernaum, Jesus saw many people out and about. But in an intentional way, he saw Matthew. He set his eyes on him. And he sees him, he finds him at his place of work, sitting or conducting business at the tax booth. And now tax people generally get a bad rap in every culture, don't they? I mean, you meet someone in the D.C. area that works for the IRS, and you slowly start to back away from the conversation. You start to guard your words just in case you got a little too much on that stimulus check or that tax refund. You keep your lips closed. Or, or maybe you open your lips, at least internally, you open your heart and you curse the entire tax system when you get your paycheck or your W-2s. And you see how much you supposedly got paid versus how much you actually brought home after taxes. Well, no one usually likes tax people. But in first century Palestine, the feeling among Jews towards tax collectors, went beyond dislike. They despised them. For one, tax collectors, who were themselves Jews, gathered taxes for the hated Romans who'd conquered the Jews and were now occupying their land. Anyone taking taxes for the enemy would themselves be considered enemies. And the worst kind of enemy, a traitor, turning their backs on their own people. But even more, and perhaps worse, many tax collectors were extortioners. They charged more than was required, and they kept the change. I mean, offending the people's patriotism was bad enough, but when you start messing with people's money, you really see what a rage looks like. So tax collectors were hated and despised in society, and for good reason. So when Jesus sees Matthew... Sitting at the tax booth, the very place where he carried out the transactions that ripped off people and rebelled against God, who requires just transactions, he has something to say to him. I mean, you see that there in the text. Verse 9 says, he saw and he said. In what seems like a previous former life, I worked for Metro for about a dozen years. And that was one of our, our main safety messages. If you see something, say something. Well, that's what we do when we see something wrong. We, we say something about it. Now, what is it that we expect Jesus to say to Matthew? I condemn you to hell, you wicked, wicked man. You lowlife of the earth, you scumbag who defrauds his own people and disgraces God. That's certainly what the Jews would have done, what they would have preferred. That's perhaps how they responded to Matthew when they saw him, perhaps mumbling under their breath as they paid their taxes. And yet Jesus comes along with a different saying. Instead of rebuke or reprimand, he reaches out with an offer of repentance, forgiveness, a new way of life. Hey, Matthew! Yes, you, come follow me. No, 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 no. Not him, Jesus. Not him. It's okay for you to show compassion and, and offer new life and forgiveness to, to paralyzed people and, and people who don't have much else going on. But, but not to this rascal. You know how much pain he's caused me. You know how much he's robbed me of, of, of all that I, I was looking forward to sharing with my family and, and all I was looking forward to having for the future? You can save anybody, but not fill in the blank. Who is that for you? Who is it that's caused so much pain, so much hurt, 
that you believe is beyond God's grace? Is it an absent parent? An ex-spouse? Is it a former friend? Who is it that you believe is the worst of sinners and deserves God's wrath? Well, it's you. It's me. It's Matthew. And yet Jesus comes and calls us to himself that he might magnify his grace over against our ungodliness. Friend, if you're here this morning and your life is an absolute wreck, and perhaps you're asking yourself, will God accept me? The answer here is unequivocally yes. Jesus pursues unlikely candidates. That's one thing we we learn about Jesus' discipleship plan. The the second part is this, that Jesus picks a simple curriculum. Point number two, Jesus picks a simple curriculum. You you know, being a Christian isn't all that elaborate. It's not some complicated and confusing plan. I mean, Jesus doesn't pursue people, uh, call people to himself, and then give them a set of Ikea-like instructions to live by. I hate Ikea's instructions. Uh, No, Jesus' grand plan for his people can be summed up in those two words to Matthew towards the end of verse 9. Follow me. That's the plan God has always had for his people. When God created Adam and Eve and put them in the Garden of Eden, he gave them his word to follow, to listen to, that they might live and may not die. He told them you can eat of the fruit of every tree in the garden, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and good of good and evil, you shall not eat lest you die. But his people disobeyed his commands and they ate. Eve ate first and she gave to her husband, Adam, and he ate. And when God came to Adam, he charged him. He said, because you have listened to your wife, Instead of following me and my commands, curse is the ground because of you. God called Abram to leave his land and his kindred, everything that he knew, and to go to a place that he would show him. He didn't tell him all the details or the exact circumstances of the journey or all that he could expect. All he simply told him was, follow me. God called Moses from a burning bush. And told him to follow him back into Egypt to bring my people out. God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he led them through the Red Sea on dry land. And for 40 years of wilderness wanderings, he guided them, literally telling them to follow me. As he led them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. On Mount Sinai, God gave his people laws to obey. He wrote his law on stone tablets to give his people that they might follow his instructions and live distinctly his way. In Deuteronomy, on the brink of entering the promised land, God gave Israel a second set of instructions and told them, if you will follow me and not the ways of the land, I will bless you and keep you and never curse you. God took David from the pasture from following the sheep to following him all the way to the throne of Israel. And he told Solomon, his son, follow me as David, your father, did. So so, so when we get here in this passage to Jesus' command to follow me, we're not coming to some different message. We haven't come across some cutting-edge philosophy of ministry. No, Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, is calling Matthew, and by extension us, to do what God has always called his people to do. Follow me. Friends, you see why we can't unhitch our Old Testament from our New Testament. Because then we miss the one plan of God 
for the one people of God to do one thing. Follow me. It's a simple command, but it is not an easy one. It costs to follow Jesus. And here we see Jesus command Matthew to follow me, and Matthew immediately leaves the tax booth and follows him. You see, following Jesus will always involve forsaking something and leaving something behind. It will always involve leaving your sin behind. You cannot cling to your sin and come to Christ. I think we see that here. I mean, I think we could easily read this passage and, and come across with the notion, come away with the notion that following Jesus means leaving your job behind. That's sometimes true. I mean, we see that earlier in the book when Jesus calls John and his brother, Peter and his brother, to come leave their jobs and, and, and follow him. That's sometimes true. But here Jesus calls Matthew to leave not just a job, but to leave everything that's manifested in that job, all that's fed and nurtured in that line of work. He calls him to leave his old way of life, his old way of thinking, his old way of relating to people. He calls him to leave his sin and to follow him. You notice how different this command to follow Jesus is from the messaging being pumped towards us? We're constantly being told to follow our hearts, to follow our dreams, to follow our passions, to follow a certain lucrative career path. You are the master of your own destiny. We're all tempted to embrace that kind of mindset. You know, I think the, the, the way some of us think of Christianity is that we just add Jesus to our lives. And, and that way we can differ very little from a Hindu. Happy to have yet another God. And so we call ourselves Christians and we just kind of put Jesus on the side. We tell him to come alongside us as we figure life out. Uh, Jesus, you, you can come on for the ride as I figure what college I'll go to, as I figure out which person I'll date and try to marry, as I figure out which job I'll pursue. Friends, that's something, but we should be hesitant to call it Christianity. The only biblical picture of Christianity is Christ in front and us chained behind. The whole Christian life is a call to die to some false sense of autonomy, which we were never created for, and to follow the one whom we were created for. I mean, that's how the whole Bible speaks of Christianity as us being chained to Christ. You are not your own, but were bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. You are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 1, verse 6. If that kind of language bothers you, it could be because we have a false notion that at some point we were actually free agents, that we had free reign. The Apostle Paul corrects that kind of thinking in Ephesians 2, that kind of thinking that apart from Christ, we were free agents. Paul says that apart from Christ, we're all following the course of this world. We're following the prince of the power of the air that is now at work among the sons of disobedience. You see, the reality is that we've all got a chain on us. The only question is, who is on the other end of it? If it's Satan and sin, it will lead us to a sure and eternal death. But if it's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he will lead us to life. For Matthew, to leave a lucrative career to follow Jesus was an acknowledgement that there was something better than money. That there was something better than status. Jesus Christ. He counted the cost and concluded that Christ was better than what he had. So when Jesus called, he got up and immediately followed him. Now, what does following Jesus look like for you? 
Oh, well, if you've never committed your life to him, then today he is calling you, perhaps for the first time, to follow him. To turn away from your sin and to turn away from all your rebellion against the God who created you and to instead turn to him, to give your entire life to him. To say, Jesus, I'm tired of following the ways of the world, of following my own flesh, of following my own agenda, of rebelling against you. And I want to right now follow your plans for my life. I want to follow you as the good and perfect creator and savior who loved me and who gave himself for me. The Lord who who loved you so much that he left the joys of heaven and came to earth to live the perfect life that you and I should have lived. A life of perfectly following every single one of the Father's commands. Right? I do all that the Father is pleased with, Jesus said. Not only did Jesus live the perfect life that we should have lived, but following God's commands. At the end of that life, he laid it down. And as we'll celebrate in, in, in a few weeks, he, he picked up a cross. And he died the death that we deserve to die for refusing to follow God's commands. For spitting in God's face and say, I don't want any of your rule. Jesus said, I'll take their charge. And he ate the charge of eternal death for us on the cross. So that we might be saved if we turn from our sins and trust in him. Jesus died for our sins and got up from the grave three days later. And he ascended into heaven where right now at the father's side, what Jesus Christ is doing, even through these fallible lips that I'm saying things to you right now, what he's doing is saying to you right now, Follow me. I wonder will you respond to Jesus Christ this morning? If you've never followed Jesus, today is the perfect day. There is no better day than to be saved than right now. Sunday, March 26, 2023. There'll never be another March 26, 2023. There may be another, not, may, there may never be another day for you to turn from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do so today. Beyond this initial call to follow Jesus, that command will just have a myriad of applications. I mean, kids, young people, if you're less than 18, you're still a kid, probably living in your parents' house. For you, following Jesus, that's a kind of big command, follow Jesus. For you, part of what following Jesus means is following your parents' commands. Yes, the command to clean your room. Yes, the command to put all the Barbies and Legos away. Those little silly commands that seem to have no eternal significance. Well, one thing they're doing is training you to trust God. Right? God is the one who gave you these parents. This parent? Yes, that parent. Right? And God is saying that how you respond to their authority is a reflection of how you respond to his authority. So part of following Jesus for you, little kids, is following your parents' instructions as an act of obedience to God. If you're employed, following Jesus may mean leaving your current job. And that's what Matthew did. It may mean leaving that job because the very nature of the work is corrupt. Or maybe your boss is starting to ask you to do things that you know are unethical. Or following Jesus may mean you're going to find a new job in a new city to help support or start new gospel work for the sake of the gospel. I mean, some of you perhaps have already done that in coming to be a part of Chevrolet Baptist Church, of starting this church plant four or five years ago. You, you, you left some things behind in order to make Christ known in this part of PG County. A lot of people are trying to move away from PG County. Many of you have flocked to PG County to make Jesus Christ known. I hope you understand these acts as following Jesus more than just following your dreams or following a specific leader or organization. For many of you, following Jesus may mean you staying here long term for decades to support the gospel work coming out of Chevrolet Baptist Church. To support Jesus Christ being known as King in Chevrolet and Bladensburg and this entire little region up here in, in central and northern PG County. It may mean you staying here long term so you can send other people to go out and make Jesus Christ known from Chevrolet Baptist. That might mean 
forsaking the house and the yard of your dreams. I mean, who can possibly afford the house and the yard of your dreams in this area? If you can't afford that, let me talk to you after service and see if we get a little support system set up. It might mean embracing the heavy traffic and the hectic schedule that come along with living in the D.C. region. Friends, in every area of life, Jesus is calling all of us to this basic but costly work to follow me. Jesus picks a simple curriculum. The third part of Jesus' discipleship plan, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. Point number three, Jesus prioritizes time with sinners. Look with me at at verses 10 and 11. We read, and as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's striking, isn't it? To see the change of scenery between verses 9 and 10. I mean, you'd expect Jesus to call sinful Matthew from that wicked tax booth in verse 9, and then verse 10, to show them up in the holy temple together. Jesus walking Matthew through Christianity Explained, or through an inductive Bible study, or teaching him the proper way to pray. Instead, we find Jesus chilling at Matthew's dinner table. I think one of the things it shows us is that a lot of discipleship can happen in informal settings. Jesus is at Matthew's house. Luke's account of this story fills in that detail for us. And Matthew has invited his friends over, tax collectors and sinners, which is stunning. Jesus has called Matthew to leave his work but not his co-workers. No, he calls them to bring them to me that they too might find freedom in following me. You know, I think it's interesting that that many of us become Christians and immediately we leave everything of our old lives behind. We don't have any contact anymore with any of our old friends or old acquaintances who shared our old ways. But saints, there's no place that you can set your feet in this sinful world where you will be away from sinners. That is not Jesus' plans. He does not save us and send us immediately to heaven. No, he saves you and me and leaves us here in this dark and sinful world, in this dark and sinful community, to be salt and light in it. Jesus saves you not to draw you out of every sin-riddled sphere that you once occupied, but to send you back into some of those spheres with a new purpose, to introduce sinners to your Savior. Matthew got that. He wanted his sinful friends to meet his newfound Savior. I mean, it reminds us of the disciple Philip's encounter when he met Jesus. He immediately went and found Nathanael and told him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus of Nazareth, come and see. It reminds us of the Samaritan woman when she met Jesus. The Bible tells us that this once shameful woman ran back into town and told everybody boldly, come see a man who told me everything I'd ever done. Perhaps it reminds you of when you first met Jesus. You were so full of zeal and fervor. You didn't know much, but you knew that Jesus Christ had totally transformed your life and you could not keep it to yourself. You had to go tell somebody, your parents, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, come see a man. Come meet my Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder, have you lost that? Well, who's changed? Jesus or us? 
Let's pray. I need this for myself often. Pray. Pray that the Lord right now, pray today that the Lord would restore the joy of your salvation. That he would return you to your first love, that you would run back into the people who are still running away from the Lord and show them your transformed life and tell them to come see Jesus. He wants to see you. Matthew invites his friends to, to meet Jesus. And they jumped at the invitation. Verse 11 tells us that many tax collectors and sinners came. Does that surprise you that, that, that so many sinful people wanted to spend time with Jesus? That Jesus attracted so many sinners? It surprises me. In, in our day, Christians don't have the best of reputations with non-Christians. Not many unbelievers are jumping at the opportunity to spend time with us. And now some of that is surely due to their own blindness and hardness of heart. Men love darkness rather than the light. That is absolutely true. But I wonder if, if there's something else. I wonder if, if there's something about the way that Jesus related to people, showing genuine love and concern for them that you and I sometimes lack. I wonder if people can, can detect that sometimes we only care about quick conversions, spewing out a few words from the Bible to end conversations rather than to deepen them. I wonder if as Christians we too often treat people as projects and nobody wants to be worked on. I think Jesus teaches us here two things that are necessary in reaching sinners. Number one, close proximity. And number two, time. Jesus draws near to sinful people and he spends time with them. Here he does it in the context of sharing a meal with them, which is just incredibly practical and replicable. You don't need to add another event to your schedule. Are you planning to eat dinner tomorrow? Well, consider inviting your neighbor or your coworker, or a family member, or the family from your kid's school or soccer team. Let them see how you live and let them see how you talk. Don't hide Jesus from them. Let them see how Christ impacts your home. We don't have enough seats. Make the kids sit on the floor. Let the adults eat on the sofa. More important than the formality is the function opening your lives to unbelievers. Now, I can almost sense the incredibly busy moms in the room saying, are you nuts right now? Do you know how busy my heart and my home already is? I don't understand completely, but I do have a busy mom and a wife that lets me know often that my grand schemes of discipleship do not fit into her plans for what discipleship looks like. So I understand you've got limited time. Limited hours, limited availability. You're trying to disciple your kids. You're trying to care for your spouse. You have a home to maintain. Amen and amen. My point is don't segregate those things. Integrate. Don't add another thing. Integrate others into things you're already doing. I mean, you notice that here in verse 10. You've got Matthew at the dinner table learning something. And you've got these tax collectors and sinners at the dinner table learning something. And you've also got the, uh, Jesus' disciples there learning something. You've got the 12 disciples there learning something. I think you see, we, we don't need a separate night, a separate day for Christians, and a separate night for non-Christians, and a separate night for family, and a separate night for church members. Bring brothers and sisters from the church and unbelievers from the neighborhood around the same dinner table, around the same grill. Invite them to the same functions. Uh, tell them, tell two or three brothers to, to come play ball at the local park so you can be with Christians and non-Christians. Right? Have uh, two or three other sisters, stay-at-home moms, go to the local park where there'll be other moms who may not know the Lord Jesus with the purpose to spend time with them, these dear sisters in Christ, and to possibly meet unbelieving neighbors. Right? Don't 
underestimate how much discipleship happens in informal settings and don't underestimate how much discipleship happens simply by observation. How much you're discipling your kids and other church members by seeing them seeing how you live life intentionally for the Lord, even in the midst of what seems like mundane matters. My friends, food, a little bit of food, a flexible schedule, and a willing heart can be wonderful evangelistic and discipleship tools. But you know, Jesus' kindness to sinners, his prioritizing time with them is sadly the very thing that earns criticism with the supposed righteous in this passage. We, we see in verse 11 that the Pharisees' criticism of Jesus for defiling himself by being in such close proximity to sinners. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners, they ask? You see how different the, the Pharisees' attitude is towards sinful people than Jesus's? They see sinners and stay away. Jesus sees sinners and draws close. But why do the Pharisees assume that it's wrong for Jesus to eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, in the ancient world, to eat with someone was a sign of identification. And any respectable Jewish teacher would never share a meal with such people, let alone do so in the unclean house of a tax collector. No Jewish respectable teacher would do so if he was really holy. Pharisees charge Jesus with wrong here and not being so righteous after all. And I think it's a helpful exercise here to stop and consider who we most identify in this passage. Do we most identify with Jesus or with the Pharisees? Are we more like Jesus who engages with despised people or are we more like the Pharisees standing on the sidelines? casting labels and lobbying accusations against those whose ministry looks different from ours, different from what we think ministry is supposed to look like. I think we learn here that ministry is messy. It's going to involve you engaging with people and in situations that other people, other religious people may not like. And it's going to earn you some backlash from folks accusing you of wrong for trying to do right. I mean, if Jesus was on earth today, I have no doubt that he'd be labeled by some as a radical left-leaning social Marxist and by others as an ultra-conservative right-wing nutjob. Now, neither of those would be true. But Jesus was, not inter was interested in helping people all kinds of people in need, and he spent time with them. Jesus was not ashamed of spending time with sinners, even if it garnered hateful labels from his critics. He knew what his purpose is or was, even if others did not appreciate it, even if other pious folks didn't condone it. We're going to have to learn that to be a people who are focused on doing good gospel-centered ministry in word and deed, that if we're going to do that, then we have to grow into a maturity that aims primarily to please God and not to appease critics. If we're going to do good word and deed, gospel-centered ministry that does good to others, we're going to have to learn to mainly worry about pleasing God and not appeasing critics. We're going to have to let labels fly where they may. Let accusations come as they will. And when people ask us heatedly, what are you doing? Tell them quite calmly, I'm trying to follow Jesus. The Pharisees failed to understand that Jesus' close encounters with sinners did not stain him, but it cleansed them. It had a purifying effect. He was around them not to encourage them in their sin, but to call them from it. He came near to tax collectors and sinners to call them to do what he had just called Matthew to do, to follow me. The Pharisees thought to be holy was to be distant from sinners. 
Jesus showed that to, be, that to be holy was to be both devoted to God and to dine with sinners. In fact, the two were not mutually exclusive. To be devoted to God was shown by desiring the good of others who were separated from him. The Pharisees needed to learn that. Jesus was about to teach them. Which leads to our fourth and final point. Jesus promotes theological education. Point number four, Jesus promotes theological education. I'll look back briefly at verses 12 and 13. We read, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We see two rebukes here, one in verse 12 and the other in verse 13. The one here in verse 12 is the more veiled of the two. Obviously, the, the, the way the Pharisees were thinking, they saw themselves as healthy and these tax collectors, these sinners as the sick, as the unclean one. Okay, fine, Jesus says. Let's both agree that they are sick and let's assume that you are healthy. Well, then, why are, not, why, why are you not helping the sick? I mean, you see them in need. Why aren't you doing something about it? I mean, no doctor worth their weight could just sit around and watch other people suffering without getting in and stepping in to do something about it. And yet these Pharisees, those who claim to be clean, refuse to get their hands dirty to help people. And at the same time, they criticized Jesus for doing so. Why? Because they cared more about themselves than they did for others, which just revealed how incredibly sick and unclean they themselves were as well. Which leads to Jesus' more pointed rebuke in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And that's a pretty open slap in the face of the Pharisees. I mean, to the people who were the spiritual leaders of the day, whose very job was to teach the Torah and to apply it to everyday life. It's an open step to tell the teachers, go back and learn what the Bible means. I mean, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? I mean, up in verse 11, the Pharisees distance themselves from Jesus as much as they can when they talk to his disciples and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Well, here, Jesus identifies himself as the Pharisees' teacher as well, teaching them what a life that truly honors God looks like. It's a life full of mercy. And he sends them to Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, to make the point, which they probably knew well. I mean, they probably finished the rest of the sentence as Jesus started to quote it. I desire, yeah, 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 mercy and that sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But we know that verse too. But Jesus wasn't criticizing them for not knowing what the verse said. He was criticizing them for not knowing what the verse meant. Friends, knowing the Bible, but not living by what the Bible says to do does you no good. I mean, hearing the word on Sundays, but not doing what the word instructs Monday through Saturday only condemns you. It's interesting that Jesus would pick Hosea to quote here. I mean, the entire book of Hosea is basically a rebuke against the Israelites for their unfaithfulness. The entire book of Hosea is showing that the, the Israelites had forsaken God's covenant. They worshiped idols and were serving others, other gods. They'd broken the first and greatest commandment to love the Lord their God with all their hearts. They instead offered him divided love. They were still offering sacrifices to him. They were still keeping all the appointed feasts, while at the same time worshiping pieces of wood. The Pharisees would look back on Israel in Hosea's day and say, we're nothing like them. We've never defiled ourselves with other gods. We've kept ourselves clean from anything impure. To which Jesus would say, you are just like them. And here's why. 
you think that external acts of religion can cancel out all your acts of rebellion. And how are they acting rebellious? Well, in their lack of love and compassion. In their lack of love and compassion for outcasts like Matthew. They misunderstood the law to be about ritual rather than relationship. A right relationship with God and a right relationship with those created in God's image. They kept the fine details of the law. They tithed deal and mint and cumin, but they neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness and love. They thought they were keeping the first half of the law, loving the law with all their heart, but by failing to keep the second half, loving their neighbor as themselves, they proved to be keeping neither side of the law. Go back and learn, Jesus says, what the law actually means. And then after you go back and learn what the law actually means, come back and look. Look at me fulfilling the law. Doing what you and Israel and every other person has failed to do, loving God perfectly and loving people perfectly. And how was that demonstrated? By Jesus coming. Coming to call sinners. Wicked sinners like Matthew. Wicked sinners like the Pharisees. Wicked sinners like you and me. To all do. This one simple but costly thing. Follow me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. That is simple enough for a child to understand it. And yet too heavy for us to, uh, to fully carry ourselves. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would make new hearts that are hard or dead this morning that they might desire to do your will and desire to follow you in every sphere of life. Lord, we pray that those of us who already know you might be strengthened by your spirit to engrace by your spirit, Lord, to walk and run in the commands that you've given us, to live lives that reflect your love and your care for others, recognizing that we too were sinners who've been called away from our sin and Lord, to call other people to do the same. Lord, you commanded us to follow you. Give us everything we need to obey your commands, we pray. In Jesus' name.